0: This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, plus the opportunity to vote each week on what upcoming topics we'll cover, while full membership gets you all that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the anti-democratic power. Implemented by many GOP led legislatures during the lame duck session, and the Democracy Reform Bill introduced by the new Congress's House Democrats as their first order of business. Clips today come from Counterspin, The Bradcast, The Weeds, Off Kilter, Vox, and Democracy Now!
1: One can make too much of political gestures, but when 44 former senators co-sign an op-ed declaring that the country is Entering a dangerous period, there may be something to see here. The piece, signed by 32 Democrats, 10 Republicans, and two independents, had reference to investigations of Donald Trump. But the ex-lawmakers stated concern about the rule of law and the ability of our institutions to function freely and independently could be well applied in numerous places around the country. Whereas our next guest reports, We are seeing in the wake of the midterms, quote, a red tide of anti-democratic power grabs, strategies, tactics, and rationales designed to deny the will of the voters, close quote. Paul Rosenberg is a writer and activist. He's senior editor for Random Lengths News, as well as a columnist for Al Jazeera English and a contributor at Salon.com. He joins us now by phone from Southern California. Welcome back to Counterspin, Paul Rosenberg. Thank you. Well, there's a lot of skullduggery to talk about. Um, I know in your piece, your recent piece for Salon, you break it into some different categories, but really start start anywhere you like on these uh, power grabs that are going
2: on. Well, I think the most blatant that have gotten the most attention have been in, in Wisconsin right. and secondarily in Michigan, where you just have this uh, wholesale rebellion of the uh, legislatures against the will of the people. And in Wisconsin, you had a Democrat elected governor and attorney general, and you have the legislatures try to take power away from them or succeed so far. There may be court battles that will probably drag out. This is what's expected. Similarly, same thing in Michigan, although there you have three women elected to the governor's of the attorney general and the secretary of state position, and all three of them are under attack there, plus a whole raft of three citizen initiatives that they're trying to cripple, and then two other initiatives that were taken off the ballot because they were passed by the legislature instead. And that then enabled them to come back and fiddle with them afterwards. And this was something that's never been done before. But in fact, there was an opinion by the attorney general dating back to uh, 1964, I believe, that said you couldn't do that. But then after the midterm elections, the defeated candidate for governor, who's the sitting attorney general, wrote a new opinion that said, yes, they can do that. And so... You're seeing all this basically based on gerrymandered districts. These permanent majorities that do not have majority support are taking power away from the people and from their elected representatives, the governors, uh, attorney general, and in the case of Michigan, also the secretary of state. So that's sort of the essence of what the most consistent pattern has been. And we see that also in several other places. The Florida People were very aware of the restoration of felon voting rights. Well, after that happened, there's been a similar thing happening in Florida where the chief election officer is saying, well, I need some guidance in terms of how this should be implemented. And the people who passed it said, no, you don't need any guidance at all. It's completely self-executing. Right. right. And so there's talk there about the legislature getting involved with that as well.
1: I just want to draw you out, and and in in case that's not clear for folks, we're talking about ballot initiatives, and in Michigan, you say it was pulled off the ballot, and that was... In order to make it something that the legislature could then go back in and fiddle with, and and fiddle with, uh, we can understand that to mean as much as overturn the intention of the original initiative.
2: Well, basically, to really subvert it, there were two of them. One was for a minimum wage increase, and the other was a paid leave act. And what they did was significantly weaken them. Mm -hmm. The figures on the minimum wage law is it was going to go to $12 an hour by 2022 and by 2024 for tipped workers. And they changed it so it would only go to $12 an hour by 2030. That's quite a bit longer. They eliminated the cost of living adjustments as well. And for the tipped workers, it would only go up to 458 per hour with the employers responsible for making up the difference. They fell below that. But that's, you know, it's a very much more muddled situation. And it was, by again, by 2030. So we're talking about a much longer period of time. And given inflation, it's not even clear that that's really going to be any increase at all.
1: And the point so, is it 's not it 's not what people said they wanted It was
2: nothing close to what they said, but it it 's a combination of subverting the will and making it so confused it 's even hard to understand what 's going on so it 's both confusing and subverting
1: Well, in your piece uh, that 's up at salon, you walk through a lot of this information and a question that comes to the reader's mind and that you respond to is, is this legal? You know, and the it turns out that a number of these moves, they're legal, but people ha- don't do them, you know?
2: Right. The phrase constitutional hardball was introduced by uh, law professor Mark Tushnet uh, when he was at Georgetown and well, I guess it was in 2003 or so, he's now at Harvard Law, and he means basically something that is technically legal under the Constitution, but that people just haven't done. And it was conceived of at the federal level, but it's applicable here as well. And it's even more complicated because what may be constitutional under state constitution and the federal constitution may be at variance. And so, it can get very tangled up, and in some cases, some of these things may be illegal. They're just so over the line. But the idea, basically, is to do things you can get away with that will be found legal, but that no one would ever have thought of doing. And, you know, it is legal for an attorney general to overturn a previous opinion of another attorney general. There's no law against doing that. It just isn't done, especially done after the election, so that then they can act in a lame-duck session. That violates several norms at once.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. But it's
2: not illegal. (laughs) (laughs) At least not on its face. Now, of course, it could be illegal. It could go up to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court might say, "Uh uh-uh, you can't do that. It violates a deep, fundamental constitutional principle Thing is, those principles are upheld by norms. And it's only if a court rules that that norm has the force of law that it then becomes illegal. And so that's where, that's what hardball is all about. It's about reshaping the norms. It's something that conservatives do a, a lot more than liberals because they're interested in really changing the way our government works. They're really in a long-term effort to undo the New Deal and all of the state constitutions that have similar kinds of governing philosophies.
1: At various points in this article, you note under coverage, and I'm hearing you say how thorny it is. And at the same time, it's not impossible to see through it. It's not impossible to make sense of what's going on. So any under coverage is (laughs) lamentable, you know, especially given that darkness is only going to abet these kinds of anti-democratic measures.
2: Clearly, and they do things very, very quickly, precisely because of that, because they don't want people looking and seeing what they're doing. When people did get wind, I mean, we had another wave of incredible protests in Madison, Wisconsin, reminiscent of 2011 Precisely because of that, because they were trying to rush something through so quickly, because they were hiding it as best they could.
1: And then just before I got on the phone to talk to you, I was looking through coverage, and I saw a piece, a fact-checking piece from the Associated Press, and it's, of course, with reference to Evers and Walker in Wisconsin, and the headline was, Will Evers Still Have Plenty of Power? (laughs) And I just thought wow, is that the angle we're going to go for? You know, like, oh, it it doesn't matter. He's still going to have plenty of power. What would be useful journalism at this point?
2: Well, I think the more useful journalism is to talk about it, quite frankly, in terms of growing authoritarianism, because this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to take power away from the people, away from their elected representatives, Another aspect of this, which I didn't get into in this story, because this is, you know, about these particular sets of actions, but I did reference it. There are similar kinds of actions in stripping power and restricting state courts. Right. But it's precisely because state courts can say, no, you can't do this. And legislators don't want courts telling them what they can do. So they've been stripping power of state courts as well. And that's basically all the kinds of things that, as you said in your introduction, it's the things that people are waking up to with Donald Trump. But Trump didn't invent this. Trump is just the worst symptom of something that's going on for a very long time. And the whole thrust of it is basically a move in the direction of an authoritarian regime. And it should be seen in the same terms as what we see happening around the world, from the Philippines to uh, Turkey to uh, the Soviet Union, you know, all these other places that we justifiably could point our fingers at in horror, we're going through something very similar ourselves.
1: Well, I'll just say, finally, you do point to pushback that's that's ongoing. It's not that this is happening under complete darkness, um, the people, when they've had it put before them, have indicated that uh, they're they're interested in moving to structurally um, stop this sort of thing.
2: Right, there was a very successful initiatives to implement nonpartisan redistricting commissions, and even in Michigan where Republican office holders attacked it as a power grab, it was just overwhelmingly approved. And in North Carolina, where the Republicans tried to cripple The election oversight board, that was rejected overwhelmingly there, too. So the the public sentiment is very strongly against this. And, you know, I think that developments like the formation of indivisible groups and other similar kinds of groups that have popped up around the country have been very important in changing the climate. And they're going to be even more important going forward because it's decentralized resistance like this. It's not atomized. It's networked. But that's also not imposed from the top because, you know, even the best-intentioned leaders, political leaders at the top of uh, parties are compromised by the nature of those parties. And it takes consistent grassroots pressure from below to really achieve the kind of change that's needed. Hopefully we've seen a lot more of that this time around, and we're just going to need an awful lot more of that going forward to, to continue countering this, because they're not, they're not going to stop what they're doing. They're fighting in ways that people have never expected before, and we should expect them to keep developing new ways of, of trying to subvert public will.
3: The effects of the November 6 midterms are still reverberating around the country. In Michigan, for example, as Ari Berman reports at Mother Jones, voters elected a new Democratic governor on November 6 to replace the outgoing, two-term outgoing uh, Republican, um, Rick Scott, not Rick Scott, Rick Snyder. They're all named either Rick or Scott, one way or another. Uh, Anyway, uh, they voted uh, a new Democrat in as governor, and along with it, voters expanded voting rights in Michigan by overwhelmingly passing a ballot initiative that would enact automatic and election day registration. At the same time, they also elected Jocelyn Benson, an election law expert, as the first Democratic Secretary of State since 1994, But a new bill introduced by Michigan Republicans in the lame duck before the newly elected Democrats can be sworn in would cut off voter registration 14 days before the election, effectively overturning the Election Day registration initiative that was overwhelmingly adopted by voters who apparently Republicans hate A separate proposal says Berman would strip power from Benson by removing oversight of campaign finance laws from the secretary of state's office, instead giving that authority to a state panel composed equally of Democrats and Republicans. You know, not unlike the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, which is also evenly balanced between Democrats and Republicans in order to ensure that Republicans on the commission will be able to block any enforcement of pretty much any campaign finance laws from moving forward. Michigan's Secretary of State-elect Benson said the proposal up there would, quote, lead to more gridlock and less enforcement of our already weak campaign finance laws. And she called the lame duck moves an insult to voters, Boy, a lot of Democrats around the country talking about Republicans insulting voters, having contempt for voters.
4: In the way we typically theorize about politics, uh, particularly against small D Democratic politics, If you have a party that is losing he's beginning to lose power. What you what they want to do is expand their appeal so they don't lose power, right? This is right. The, the sort of the idea of the Republican autopsy in 2012. It remains true to this day that Republicans have now lost six of the last seven presidential popular vote margins. Um, that's a really bad record for a party. You'd, you'd want to be beginning to kind of think up a bigger, broader, tense strategy, but instead they've been doing the opposite. And in these different states, which, you know, Republicans are by no means out of power forever in Wisconsin and Michigan, but as Jane says, there's some real bad currents for the parties in, in those states and in Michigan where Rick Snyder didn't even endorse the, the next governor. You know, you might imagine a, a Michigan Republican Party deciding, OK, like we've made some wrong turns here. If we're going to be competitive and certainly if we're going to be dominant in the next couple of years, like we need to get back to a, a broader based appeal. And kind of again and again, that, that doesn't seem to be happening with the Republican Party. Uh, I did this interview with Nate Silver right before the election, and we were talking about he was saying that in his models, when you run the numbers, the average state is six points more Republican than the nation as a whole. So the way the Senate is apportioned, given that it weights states equally, not people equally, the Senate gives Republicans a six-point advantage than they would otherwise have. But Republicans don't have the kind of dominance over the U.S. Senate that you would expect from that advantage. And and the reason um, is that instead of spending that advantage on more seats, they spend that advantage on more unpopular policies. They use that advantage to give themselves a buffer to do things that they're sort of either they, the Republican elites, or more narrow parts of their base want done. And it seems to be something that is happening all over the Republican Party right now. And I don't particularly have a clear explanation of why. I'm curious if either of you do.
5: So it's interesting because I I think about this question a lot about the idea, you know, whenever there is some conservative or far right commentator who is very concerned that there will never be a Republican president ever again because there are too many brown people voting. You know, I think to myself, you could attempt to pitch Republican ideas to non-white people. You could do that. It's a thing that has been done before. You know, during the 2018 midterms, a Republican candidate, namely Ted Cruz, did better with Latino voters than Trump did in 2016. When we had our conversation about California conservatives, we talked a little bit about this, that, you know, it's something that I would love to get into at some other time, is that, you know, George W. Bush and Rick Perry ran very different campaigns that did, in fact, aim at non-white voters who they thought might have conservative leanings. But I think you see this idea... Obviously, since I've written about this, I deeply believe this. But you see this kind of California conservative, like, we have to, like, get all this done right now because we will never win an election again because there's no way that we could pitch our ideas to these people. And it's a very strange argument to basically say, like, if we don't attempt to usurp the rights of the voters or take away the decisions the voters have made, we cannot fight with Democrats on an equal playing field, when history would easily dictate that clearly conservatives can.
6: This also reminds me of when we were talking about the California conservatives because this kind of behavior, the behavior of state-level Republican parties, it suggests to me that for all this kind of hype in the, in the media world of, of this idea that politics is downstream of culture or that what conservatives really want is victory in the culture wars. Their behavior in this kind of like brass tack stuff says otherwise, right? Like there is some element of the institutional conservative movement that really, really craves political power and not just the showy symbolism of political power, right? Like, Scott Walker losing to Tony Evers is a big kind of statement, right? In the, in the culture, like Wisconsin, is it turning into a red state? No. Now we have this liberal governor again. But like, the legislature is acting here in procedurally and substantively abusive ways because there is a profound concern about the little niggling details of public policy, right? And it's the same in Michigan, right? Like, The minimum wage is really popular, right? It's really popular. If you wanted to own the libs, you would just take one for the team and embrace it. But like they don't. They are willing to bend the rules, to break norms, to risk losing elections, to make sure that companies do not need to increase the salaries that they pay to low-income people. And it just seems to me that when you look not at the sort of – rhetoric of conservatism, but at the practice of conservative politics, that the fingerprints of plutocracy are all over it. I mean, not just in the campaign contributions that go, but in what is the substantive agenda, in the willingness to lose elections in pursuit of unpopular policies, and also in the question of what's in it for you, right? Like, How come nobody from the back benches of the Wisconsin legislature— Wants to be the reformer hero who like stands up to the party machine and to these kind of abuses, right? And it's like somebody is doing this work and it's not like – dedicated readers of the Breitbart comments section who are obsessed with culture war atmospherics, right? Like, these are people who really, really, really care about whether or not it is easier or harder to sign up for Medicaid and food stamps in Wisconsin. And they are taking big risks to their reputations, to their careers, to the underlying stability of the American political system. And I have to think that's because, like, really rich donors think this is important.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Arrett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter, with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful multi dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT.
7: It's a friggin' bad week for democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's where we really need to start. Um, and obviously, a lot of attention right now, although not nearly enough relative to what is happening, um, but being paid to Wisconsin and a massive, massive sour grapes Republican power grab in the wake of an election that didn't make the Republican Party in that state particularly happy. What do we know right now?
8: Yeah, so the Wisconsin State Senate today voted to... Um, restrict the incoming governor and uh, attorney general's power both of whom are democrats uh, both of whom recently defeated republicans of course and um this is the attempt essentially by the state's republicans to um rewrite the state's laws because they lost um and it will have a particular impact on Low-income people. Um, it will essentially require the governor to implement implement the state's Medicaid waiver and require uh, the state to stay on a lawsuit as part of the uh, – against the Affordable Care Act's protections of pre-existing condition. Both of these were huge topics in the campaign. It's not like they're just doing this as an aside. This was literally the subject of of the gubernatorial campaign and what the, the governor, uh, Tony Evers ran on. Um, they would also, uh, require the governor to seek pr- approval for basically any new policy, uh, regarding Medicaid or food assistance, um, including seeking federal, uh, uh, federal approval, um, and basically, uh, block the new governor's flexibility um in federal pr- food pr- programs like um summer feeding um or food share which is Wisconsin's um SNAP program um and of course it's not just uh, the low income provisions um it's restricting early voting in the state to to undermine uh the state's democracy um it's allowing the legislature to hire private lawyers to undermine the role um historical role of the attorney general in the state um it is, uh, a massive, massive deal. Um, and it's hap- this is not the first state where it's happened, of course. You,
7: yeah, and you mentioned the Medicaid piece. Uh, I feel like the one of the things that's not getting um, uh, nearly enough attention within the context of this massive, uh, far-reaching power grab um, is the health care piece of this, right? So yep. to, to be very clear, uh, the incoming governor, uh, Tony Evers, has stated and stated in the campaign his opposition to taking Medicaid away from jobless folks, right, something that we also know a majority the American people don't want to see happen. Um, And and yet that is what this legislation will require him to do despite his having campaigned against it and the the people of the state agreeing with him by putting him in that seat. He doesn't get to make that choice. Um, And you mentioned on the Affordable Care Act side as well, locking the the state leadership into that lawsuit that attorneys general are are, uh, uh, continuing to mount um, uh, that would effectively gut the Affordable Care Act, uh, specifically protections for pre-existing conditions so, just a ton in in this package that's actually specifically targeting low income um, Wisconsin folks um, uh, as democracy gets subverted uh, in this in this wholesale way. Um, and it's not just uh, Wisconsin where yeah. we're seeing something like this happen. We talked extensively last week about Michigan, um, and now we've got updates on that front as well. And they're not a hell, a hell of a lot rosier.
8: Right. Um, it, it, similar attempts. Um, the Republican legislature in Michigan is aiming to basically limit uh, the authority of governor elect Gretchen Whitmer a democrat and the state's attorney general um and the secretary of state on on campaign finance laws and and other legal issues um all three of whom are women a historical first for Michigan and now they're having essentially the rug pulled out from from under their their power in the state
7: And the rug pulled out from under the voters who made those decisions. And and, uh, I sort of feel the need to, like, uh, take a step back here and just point out as much as we're walking through specific provisions here, the the, the big picture here is Republicans in these states weren't happy with the outcome of the elections. The voters decided they made their choices known. and, And now Republicans are using lame duck sessions to effectively undercut the decisions the voters made at the ballot box and neuter the position. That now are going to be held by the the opposing party. That's not how democracy works. Right. Does this does this basically make the case for doing away with lame duck sessions? Is that where we need to go here? I mean, the democracy is actually basically at a crossroads. If this becomes the playbook, when uh, one party doesn't like the outcome of an election, yeah.
8: I, I I mean, I think you're right to broaden it out, and it happened with in uh, North Carolina and in 2016, um, and I think we. Talk Talk a lot about Trump's threat to democracy um, and his subversion of democratic norms and what that means. But I think what we're seeing is A, it's not just Trump. This is this is where the Republican Party is currently at. They are an anti-small D Democratic Party. They will subvert democracy to reach their ends. Regardless of what you think about those ends, they are plainly anti-democratic Um and we talk a lot about how trump is defying norms and the party is defying norms in many way but th- we're seeing that they're willing to put those norm-defying actions into law so that they are changing the law to subvert democracy long term. Um, so I think there, there's a lot of potential solutions doing away with lame duck sessions is one. Um, but there needs to be a similar, similarly strong effort on the other side to protect democracy when it's under threat.
7: And, um, I mean, you described a little bit of what's going on in Michigan. We, we also talked a lot about it, as I said last week. Some of that is still playing out as we speak, but, um, we're watching not just power being taken away from incoming leaders, but also we're watching actual choices that voters made at the ballot box on issues like paid sick leave, like minimum wage, also being stripped away from them so that instead of being able to make choices at the ballot box, uh, the legislature is taking this exceptional and, and, and biz- bizarre um, uh, step of passing, and I should say Republicans in the legislature, of passing the bills that they then are now turning around. And what's happening this week is they're actually repealing them or gutting them um, so that the voters never get a chance to decide through representative democracy. Um, So uh, excuse me, I should say through direct access to democracy. This is this is what passes for representative democracy. And I'm putting that in massive, massive scare quotes, because obviously it's the opposite.
3: At a news conference on Monday, state Democratic Party chair Wayne Goodwin said the elections board was right to delay certification of the election and to call for a public hearing. Goodwin uh, said, for years, Republicans have pursued voter ID as a solution to a voter fraud problem that doesn't exist. Their efforts disenfranchise North Carolinians and target communities of color. Uh, Yet... He said the GOP has called for the board to certify an election where serious allegations of election tampering have been made. The hypocrisy, he noted, is unmistakable evidence of uh, it's true. It's just it's kind of mind blowing, which is why I've been just just fascinated with this story since it broke uh, last week, a week or so. Yeah, ago I, mean, it's, I mean, it's
8: shocking, I, if not surprising. It is shocking. It, it's unbelievable.
3: Evidence of possible election fraud was uncovered just as state legislators began working to pass that new voter ID law that I mentioned actually to jam it through. What they're trying to do is jam that bill through in the lame duck in North Carolina before they lose their supermajority in the state legislature so that they can then override any veto from the state's Democratic governor. Roy Cooper. Yes, they now have a democrat in charge. Uh he was elected 2 years ago in 2016, but the Republicans are about to lose their supermajority which they've been able to use to override uh Cooper's vetoes of these insane right-wing things that they've been passing in uh, in North Deco- in uh, North Carolina. Back to Ari Berman at Mother Jones. He says Republican efforts to strip Democrats of power during the lame duck legislative sessions originated in North Carolina back in 2016. Following the election of Democratic Governor Roy Cooper, the Republican led legislature passed a series of bills to reduce his power, which included preventing the then incoming Democratic governor from. From appointing a majority of members to the state board of elections, and hundred uh, and the one hundred county boards of elections. So, uh, in fact, that's part of all of this mess as well, because the election board itself, the state election board, faces uncertainty. A panel of three judges ruled in October that changes. To the board that were introduced by the state's Republican controlled General Assembly were in fact unconstitutional. North Carolina's governor, Democratic uh, Governor Roy Cooper, said that the changes were in fact designed to erode his control of the board. A stay in the ruling that permitted the board to operate was set to expire but has now been extended. Harris filed a motion for the board to remain in existence until his race uh, is certified. The Republican Harris in the Ninth uh, District Court. He wants to keep this, uh, this board in place until the certification happens because the incoming board, will be even less friendly, perhaps, to the Republicans. They may have, uh, the Democratic governor will have more control of that board. But Berman notes the North Carolina legislature is now at it again. It originally passed their uh, photo ID restriction back in 2013. The federal courts struck that down, saying that it targeted black voters with almost surgical precision, After that law was struck down in court, the Republican legislature put a constitutional amendment on the ballot in 2018 requiring government issued photo ID in order to vote. That passed this past November with 60 percent support on Election Day. Of course, we don't know how many fraudulent Republican absentee ballots were submitted for it, but in any event, it passed with 60 percent of the vote. But because the Republicans lost their super uh, rather legislative supermajority, they're now rushing to pass that bill, implementing the amendment in the lame duck session so that Cooper will be unable to veto it. Got that? Does this all make sense? Oh, yeah, it's
1: it's it's outrageous, but that's what they're doing. It's obscene. It's really obscene.
3: Uh, voter ID opponents and uh, uh, Goodwin, the uh, Democratic Party chair, uh, said that Republicans are willing to ignore potential fraud when it benefits their candidates. Melissa Crom of North Carolina Voters for Clean Elections said at a news conference, "Quote: It is reprehensible that the Republican Party advocates for laws making it harder for eligible voters to cast their ballot while they are trying to block a fair investigation." Into Bladen and Robeson absentee ballots.
0: If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y- you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do, or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but If you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
4: America has a democracy problem. Take a look at this chart. Over there on the left, that's how many people each member of the U.S. House represented in 1790. There's now one representative for every 747,000 Americans. That makes the U.S. a crazy undemocratic outlier internationally. But it also makes us different than what we were supposed to be. The founding fathers, they wanted that number to stay small. James Madison wanted to make sure that it would never be more than one house member for 50,000 people. I bring this up because it's one of a lot of ways in which our system has become different than what the founders intended, which maybe is okay. I think it's okay. But it's also different than what we may have intended or what we may want. People ask me sometimes what I actually worry about in American politics, what makes me afraid, and it's this. A political system needs to be legitimate to be stable. People need to feel that it's fair. But is that true right now? Two out of the past three presidents lost a popular vote for their first term in office. Two out of three. House elections are utterly warped by gerrymandering and geography. The Senate gives 623,000 people in Vermont as much power as the more than 19 million people in New York. And meanwhile, five dudes in robes who are politically appointed by parties looking for ideologues, they made it legal for billionaires to spend as much money buying elections as they want. And here's where undemocratic becomes actually dangerous. The American political system was built around the fear of disunity. The fear was that the states would pull apart. We weren't supposed to have political parties. The founding fathers thought they were bad, or at least they did before they started some. But now we do have political parties. And the competition, the core competition, the disunity in this country is between them. We don't worry about the political divisions between big states and small states. We worry about the ones between red states and blue states. And the particular ways in which America is undemocratic is making that core competition less fair, is making that political disunity more serious. The reason for that is not one anybody saw coming. Democrats cluster in big cities. Republicans are more concentrated in rural areas. The average state is six points more Republican than the country as a whole, which gives that party a huge advantage in the Senate. And in the House, well, Democrats are feeling pretty good about the House right now. But to win the House, they couldn't win by one or two or 3%, they would win a landslide, six or seven or 8%, or else they'd still be in the minority because of gerrymandering and geography. And Republicans, they're using that advantage in elections to write the rules to give themselves more advantages in elections. They're using it to win the Supreme Court for a generation and that Supreme Court, in turn, is giving them rulings on gerrymandering, on money in politics, on unions, on voter rights that are helping them win more power. As the left realizes it's playing a rigged game, They're already becoming determined to rewrite the rules. If you want to see where this is going, look at this book by David Ferris called It's Time for Democrats to Fight Dirty. It's a playbook the left can use to get more power without having to change the Constitution. And they can do a lot. He recommends statehood for DC and Puerto Rico. He recommends breaking up California into seven states in order to add at least a dozen new Democratic senators. He tells Democrats to pack the Supreme Court by increasing the number of justices in order to crack the conservative majority. He wants winner-take-all elections to be replaced with ranked choice voting in the House and to increase the number of representatives to 870. And look, some of these ideas, they're actually just good ideas. They would make politics more representative. I mean, DC and Puerto Rico should clearly be states. That's just fair. And then some, like the California thing, they're just power grabs. But that's the thing. As Democrats feel the right has been engaged in one long power grab, they're starting to feel like suckers for not grabbing more power themselves. And it's why you see the rise of street fighter, do anything Democrats like lawyer Michael Avenatti.
0: When they go low, I say, we hit harder.
4: Even Eric Holder, President Obama's former attorney general, has taken up the battle cry. When
0: they go low, we kick them. That's what what this new Democratic Party is about.
4: But imagine, just imagine Democrats take power and run some version of the Ferris playbook in 2020 or 2024. There will be an equal and opposite reaction among Republicans. Now the system will feel unfair to them. And you could just see a cycle of escalation here that destroys the basic legitimacy on which American politics rests. We need something better than that. We need more than power grabs on both sides. We need actual principles we can use to build a political system that works better. We treat our political system as if it were like etched on stone tablets and carried by George Washington down from Mount Sinai. But it wasn't. We've changed it a lot, but we haven't changed it recently. It's weird. The further we get from the founding, the more afraid we are to touch the system. There were 27 amendments to the constitution before 92. There have been zero since then and there's not like there's one on the horizon that's not how we do things anywhere else states routinely amend and even rewrite their constitutions on average each state has had three constitutions and Louisiana they've had 11 it's only at the national level that we've come to believe our political system should be frozen in amber that however we're doing things is how we should keep doing them and puzzlingly We've decided that not when we think our political system is great, but at the exact time that Americans are losing faith in our political institutions. I suspect our true belief is not that our system of government is performing so well that it should be immune to change, but that we, that we are performing so poorly that we don't trust ourselves to change it, which is sad. But this is our political system. We can't run away in self-loathing. It needs to work for the country we actually have. We can't have an old compromise between states leading to a civil war between parties. But to change it, we need a theory of what makes a political system legitimate in the first place. And that means we need some criteria by which to judge it. Robert Dahl, one of the most respected political scientists of the 20th century, he believed the ideal US Constitution would, one, maintain democracy, two, protect fundamental rights, three, ensure fairness among citizens, four, encourage forming consensus, and five, provide a government that is effective in solving problems. I like that as criteria. I think that would make sense. If you don't like it, that's fine. What you need then is to come up with something better. The one thing we can't do is just stay still. America's in an unstable equilibrium. Its current political system is producing outcomes that feel illegitimate to the left any effort to reform that system feels like it would produce outcomes and feel illegitimate to the right. We need something deeper than that. We need something that would feel legitimate to both sides and would actually work. We can't stay right where we are. So that means the answer is simple. We must move.
9: Rights advocates are hailing a new House bill that aims to restore voting rights to millions, crack down on the influence of dark money in politics, restore the landmark Voting Rights Act, establish automatic and same-day voter registration and other measures. On Friday, Democratic Congressmember John Sarbanes of Maryland introduced the bill.
0: We heard loud and clear from the American people that they feel left out and locked out too often from their own democracy that they want us to fight the culture of corruption, they want us to clean up Washington, fix the system, and give them their voice back. They want to be able to get to the ballot box without having to run an obstacle course. They want it to be easy, not hard, to register and vote in America, and H.R. 1 will address
3: that concern.
9: The bill has been dubbed the For the People Act. It's the first act of legislation introduced by the new Democratic majority in the House. Longtime civil rights and congressman John Lewis praised the legislation.
8: I said on many occasions that the vote is the most powerful nonviolent instrument of transformation we have in our democracy. We have in a democratic society. And at the foundation of our system, it must be strengthened and preserved. Their forces are trying to make it harder and more difficult for people to participate. And we must drown out these That's forces.
9: Meanwhile, in other voting rights news, the Supreme Court agreed Friday to hear two cases involving partisan gerrymandering in the states of North Carolina and Maryland. Voting rights activists fear the court may uphold partisan gerrymandering could even bar states from forming independent commissions to draw congressional districts. We're joined now by Ari Berman, senior writer at Mother Jones, reporting fellow at the Nation Institute, author of Give Us the Ballot, the Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. His latest piece, Democrats' First Order of Business, Making It Easier to Vote, and harder to buy elections. Welcome to Democracy Now. It's great to have you with Good us, Ari. Right, explain this first act in the Democratic
10: House. It's a huge bill. It basically includes so many things that democracy reform advocates have been arguing for decades are necessary. It really is the most important democracy reform bill introduced since the Watergate era. On voting rights, it would include things like automatic voter registration, election day registration, restoring voting rights to ex felons, making elect day, a federal holiday. This is the most significant voting rights bill probably since the introduction of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. On money and politics, it would include public financing of congressional elections, which would be huge to try to counteract the amount of dark money that we see in the system right now, the huge amount of corporate money that we see in the system right now. And on ethics and lobbying reform, one of the things it does is say that any sitting president and vice president has to release their tax returns, which of course is so important because Donald Trump was the the first candidate and the first president, in 40 years, not to release his taxes. So, taken together, massive expansion of voting rights, a crackdown on dark money, huge lobbying and ethics reform. It's incredibly significant this was the first thing that House Democrats said they wanted to do out of the gate.
9: And what are its chances of um, not just passing in the House, but, uh, of course, being enacted because it's President Trump who has to sign off on
10: it? Well, it has no chance right now. I mean, all the things I just— talked about our anathema to President Trump and to Mitch McConnell, who controls the Senate. I think it has a very good chance of passing in the House. Uh, but when it comes to the Senate, when it comes to President Trump, this is as much a political document as a legislative document. What House Democrats want to do is they want to say, this is what we stand for, this is what we believe in, and this is what our democracy needs. And by discussing the legislation and also holding hearings on these things, because remember, Amy, they're going to hold hearings on voter suppression. They're going to hold hearings on dark money. They're going to hold hearings on President Trump's taxes. All of that stuff is going to get attention to things that have been often dismissed as, quote-unquote, good government issues. These aren't just good government issues. These are issues that get to the core of our democracy, the core of our politics.
9: So, on Friday, the Supreme Court agreed to revisit this question of whether the Constitution prohibits extreme partisan gerrymandering. Talk about the significance of this.
10: Well, gerrymandering has completely warped our democracy. We're seeing in state after state after state, Republicans are getting a minority of of votes. But a majority of seats. And that's not how we think about politics. We think of politics as the person who gets the most votes wins the election. That's not happening. You look at the last election in Wisconsin. Republicans got 46 percent of the vote in the state assembly and 64 percent of the seats. And that's because of gerrymandering. And Democrats do it, too. So what we're seeing is the Supreme Court's going to hear these gerrymandering cases from North Carolina, where the Republicans gerrymandered, and from Maryland, where the Democrats gerrymandered. Now, a reason person would look at this and they'd say, OK, you have Republicans gerrymandering in North Carolina, you have Democrats gerrymandering in Maryland, this must be a problem that we have to deal with. The Supreme Court, however, looks to be taking the opposite approach. They are seem to be saying that we don't believe partisan gerrymandering is a problem, despite all of the factors that we see, despite all of the evidence we see of gerrymandering, the Supreme Court has basically said, we don't care. They took these cases in 2016 and they punted. They basically sent them back to the lower courts. The lower court struck down these gerrymandered maps in North Carolina, in Wisconsin in Maryland. Now it's going back to the Supreme Court. And the worry here is that the five-member conservative majority is going to tell states partisan gerrymandering is okay, which is going to open the door to rampant gerrymandering, even more rampant gerrymandering, following the 2020 election when the next census comes out.
9: You mentioned North Carolina. What's happening in the 9th Congressional District?
10: Well, what happened in the 9th Congressional District— And explain where that is. Sure. The 9th Congressional District basically goes from Charlotte all the way down to eastern North Carolina. And what we saw there was essentially mass election fraud committed by the Republican candidate Mark Harris and his allies in that race to try to win a congressional race. And it's very ironic that you had Republicans all across the country screaming voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud during the last election. But it was their party and their candidate that committed massive election fraud to try to win a congressional race. So what's happening now is the State Board of Election North Carolina has not certified that race. So Mark Harris, the Republican, was not seated in the new Congress. The Board of Election there is going to hold a hearing, and we're going to see what's going to happen. My guess is there's almost certainly going to be a new election in North Carolina at some point this year.
9: Um, Talk about what's happening in Florida. Tomorrow is a major deadline.
10: Huge day. So, in the last election, Florida voters— restored voting rights to ex-felons. There was an amendment called Amendment 4. 64.5 percent of the public approved it, which was a huge number, basically saying that people that have paid their debt to society should get their voting rights back. That could lead to up to 1.4 million people getting their right to vote back. And tomorrow is the day in which ex-felons in Florida can register to vote in— for the first time. This is a huge day for democracy in Florida. However, there is a lot of confusion surrounding this, because the new Republican governor, the the new Republican legislature, they have not said— whether people should be able to register tomorrow. The amendment is very clear. Starting on January 8th, ex-felons who have paid their debt to society, who have a clean record now, should be able to register to vote. However, the governor has basically said the legislature needs to pass a bill implementing the law. What voting rights supporters say in Florida is, this is very clear. If you have paid your debt to society, if you have a clean record, you should be able to register to vote tomorrow. So, the people that led the effort to try to pass this law, the ex-felons themselves who weren't able to register, they are going to go to their local board of elections tomorrow. They are going to try to register to vote for the first time. Let
9: me turn to Desmond Mead, president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, chair of Floridians for a Fair Democracy. I spoke to him in November uh, after Amendment 4 passed.
7: What we've seen in Florida was love prevailing, just that simple, love prevailed. We had over 5 million votes for Amendment 4, and those votes were votes of love, Uh, people voting for their loved ones and friends who made mistakes and and paid their debt and wanted to move on with their lives. And so, we're very excited, and we think that this uh, victory can serve as a, a bright spot um, for this country, it could serve as a launching pad for how we conduct business and how we can move issues along the lines of humanity and, and, and transcend above the partisan politics, transcend above the racial anxieties.
9: So, that's Desmond Mead, who is really the major force, the engine behind this um, this amendment, um, th- this referendum that they voted on, that would set an example for states around the country. Interestingly, the deadline tomorrow, people cannot deadline exactly because people can start to register, which means they can register for 2020. And we're talking about over a million people. That, that begins tomorrow, the day that the man who's trying to stop this from happening, the new uh, governor, Ron DeSantis, will be sworn in.
10: Well, it's really important to note that Florida has the worst felon disenfranchisement law in the country. One in 10 Floridians, including one in five African Americans in Florida, couldn't vote under this law, which is absolutely astonishing. Voters across the ideological spectrum repealed this. In the last election, every single congressional district in Florida voted to repeal the state's felon disenfranchisement law. This was not a Democratic versus Republican issue. This was voters across the spectrum, many of them conservative law and order Republicans who said, if you've paid your debt to society, you should have a second chance. And so I hope this doesn't become Republican versus Democrat, left versus right, like so often happens in our society. This is about giving people who have paid their debt to society their rights to vote back. And I would hope that every politician in Florida would encourage people to register to vote. Because you know what? You're going to see a lot of white Republicans, Amy, show up tomorrow and want to register to vote, just like you're going to see black Democrats or Latino independents. This is across the political spectrum. We have had such a problem with mass incarceration in Florida. So many people have lost their voting rights. And for the most important swing state in the country to potentially restore voting rights to over a million people, that could have a transformative impact on our democracy.
9: Finally, the issues you're looking at around voting rights that you think are the most important leading into the 2020 election?
10: Well, I think it's really important to note that we saw rampant voter suppression in the last election. We saw thousands of people turned away from the polls in places like Georgia and Florida and North Dakota. We haven't dealt with that yet. We haven't investigated that yet. And that's why this bill that we were talking about earlier, H.R. 1, is so important, because we have to say as a society, voter suppression is wrong. Voter suppression is illegal. Voter suppression is immoral. And we have to commit to everyone having a chance to vote in 2020. That didn't happen in 2018. There were way too many stories of people that couldn't vote for one reason or another. And I'm concerned that unless we deal with this, both in terms of bringing attention to it, but also passing new laws to make it easier to vote, that history is going to repeat itself in 2020. And we're going to see far too many barriers to the ballot box erected in advance of the next presidential election.
9: Ari Berman, senior writer at Mother Jones, reporting fellow at the Nation Institute, author of Give Us the Ballot, the Modern Struggle for Voting Rights and
11: 20 years ago today, an extraordinary woman began an extraordinary walk. Doris Haddock, a.k.a. Granny D, an 88-year-old woman from New Hampshire, began a walk in Pasadena, California, and for the next 13 months, walked 3,500 miles to arrive in Washington, D.C. on February 29, 2000. And across that walk, on her chest, was a sign that said, Campaign Finance reform Now what Granny D saw 20 years ago is something that most of us just missed That's the way in which the cronies and special interests had captured our government and made it impossible for us to achieve anything important so long as they were at the helm And what she saw was that we had to find a way to end that corruption if we were going to get our democracy back So it's extraordinarily fitting that on this 20th anniversary, our Congress is going to consider the most important civil rights legislation in our lifetime. This bill referred to as HR1 is the most fundamental reform of our political system since the Civil War. This bill would establish public funding of congressional elections. It would end partisan gerrymandering in the states. It would establish Automatic voting registration. It would restore the Voting Rights Act. It would establish an extraordinary system of ethics to keep those congressmen focused on what their constituents want rather than what the lobbyists want. This reform would be everything Granny D walked across this country to achieve. Now, you've probably not heard about this bill, H.R. 1, and you've not heard about it because the mainstream media thinks there's no chance it would ever pass. And of course, so long as Mitch McConnell is the head of the United States Senate, it would never pass because Mitch McConnell loves the corrupted system that we have right now. But it is extraordinarily important that we build a movement across this country to support fundamental reform like HR1. And what we are doing is building a campaign right now to make sure that this bill is not just a Democrats bill, but a Republican's bill too. We want to find in the next six weeks, 10 congressmen to co-sponsor that bill who are Republicans, and one senator to agree to co-sponsor a similar bill in the United States Senate. Because if we could show this was a bipartisan effort, then we could begin to crack through the attention deficit that this political system pays to this fundamental question of reform. But that just tees up the most important challenge that we have. Because as we enter the 2020 presidential election cycle, the most important thing for us Democrats to stay focused on is an issue that all of America is deeply invested in solving. And that is this corrupt political system. The president spoke about draining the swamp That slogan was actually Nancy Pelosi's before he picked it up and started using it. But what that means is that this issue is an issue that unites America. It doesn't divide America. And so what we in the Democratic Party need to do is to make sure that the candidates running for president have committed to making this reform fundamental and first. And so we will be asking every candidate running for president who expects to win in the primary in Granny D's state to commit fundamentally to making this reform the first issue they press in 2021. We need you to help us in this campaign. We need you to spread the message and start spreading the hashtag fixitfirst. Because unless we build a movement that demands the politicians give us our democracy back, they're gonna be happy to sell it to the highest bidder. Granny D was an extraordinary American. She has inspired a generation of activists in her honor. Join us in this fight.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Counterspin, speaking with Paul Rosenberg about several of the GOP power grabs across various states. The broadcast focused on the election reforms voted in by the Michigan voters that the GOP is attempting to subvert. The Weeds from Vox discussed the GOP in general and the forces of plutocracy at play off-kilter, highlighted the fact that many of these GOP power grabs were aimed at harming the poor, unsurprising. The Bradcast explained the situation in North Carolina and the fact that they were the model for this anti-democratic trend starting in 2016. Ezra Klein from Vox got into some of the roots of the democracy problem America is now feeling so acutely. And finally, we just heard Democracy Now! speaking with Ari Berman about H.R. 1, the For the People Act, introduced by House Democrats as their first order of business. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips giving more detail on not just the policy, but the good politics behind a proposal like H.R. 1, and we'll hear more from the Democrats themselves explaining in their own words why they're introducing this legislation. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from
1: you.
12: Hey Jay, thanks for a great year of informative radio. I just wanted to point out something that's sort of adjacent to the whole topic of the war on Christmas, which is that, you know, war on Christmas or not, uh, whether that battle is a win or a loss, perceive it. Um, I have a retort, which is something that we might take for granted. The measure of the year is actually based in the Catholic Church. Pope Gregory the Thirteenth introduced the Gregorian calendar in October of 1582, and that is how we measure the new year to this day. However, that doesn't mean there aren't other calendars in existence. On the Wikipedia page for the Gregorian calendar, you'll find a lot of other calendars. We've got the Buddhist calendar, which is the year 2562. We have the Chinese calendar, which is 4714. We have the Hebrew calendar, 5778. There's a lot of different calendars, but the way that the world measures time uh, in terms of the year is the Gregorian calendar. And i just like to point out that that is due to the remaining vestiges of colonization. Isn't knowledge fun? Happy New Year.
13: Hi, Jay, this is Laura in Alameda, California. I'm calling to bring up a couple of issues that I'm wondering what other people are thinking about. I don't know if they would deserve a full episode or not, but the first one is I'm wondering if there, I mean, there has to be some people who voted for Trump who are regretting their vote and are feeling like they're they don't belong in the conservative movement and the Republican Party anymore. And I think a lot of people we have very strong loyalties to things and it's very hard to change sometimes. And it's even harder if they're not going to feel welcome into a new group. So I'm wondering what we as progressives need to do to be welcoming and supportive to help people move to the left. And I think it's complicated because I know for myself that I'm incredibly frustrated bordering on being angry with the people who voted for Trump. So it's not just about How did they move over? It's also about how do we come to terms with the the feelings that we have because we're all feeling the repercussions of what these people have done to our country. And, of course, all of this is complicated, and that's the stuff that you're always hitting on, the little pieces that bring together all of this big mess that we have in this country right now. But that's one of the issues, I think. We don't really speak too much about is people who are conservative. Um, I read recently that Elizabeth Warren used to be a Republican and I know Arianna Huffington used to be a Republican. And, you know, obviously some people do change and they change radically. So how do we facilitate that? How do we welcome them in? How do we trust them after they've done something like that? I mean, I kind of feel like sometimes it's like we're in we're, we're divorced. (laughs) <laughs> the two parties are just divorced from each other in terms of our um, our dreams for what this country should be. The second thing, I don't know how long this so-called government shutdown is going to last, but since it's been done repeatedly now, I think it's something that's deserving of some attention. And one of the things that bothers me is when these, they do these shutdowns, it's, it's only a little tiny shutdown. It's not shutting down the military, which is the biggest part of our government. Oh, except I guess right now the Coast Guard's uh, working without getting paid. So they're not shutting down the military. They're not shutting down the federal prisons. They're not shutting down the CIA and the NSA and the post office and air traffic control and all those other things. If they did a real shutdown, then people would see that how important the government functioning is to everything, to our economy and to our democracy, but they don't do these things. So what they do is they somehow get to pick and choose what gets shut down. And right now, by and large, I guess a lot of these people, government employees, they're still working without getting paid, and that's not a shutdown. So we need a better name for it because this is something that we should be um, kind of on the offensive about uh, is to say, you know, this is this is not a shutdown. Uh, One of the things it is, is it's it's theft. Those people who are not getting paid for their work, that is wage theft. And it's beyond that, it's also theft from the taxpayers because we paid for their services. So Donald Trump and the Republican Party, all these people who voted for this shutdown, they're criminals. And uh, I would like it put out like that. And I'm kind of wondering what other people have to say. And, you know, I know the national parks are not certainly, you know, the biggest priority when we look at what's going on with the border and all that other stuff. But I think the national parks are symbolic of something that is is deeply resonant with a lot of people. And, you know, we know that the national parks don't get the funding that they need and, not only are the um national park employees not getting paid right now and people are going into the national parks and the facilities are not being taken care of because the employees aren't not getting paid to do the work that needs to be done but in addition to our taxes there are entrance fees to the national many of the national parks not all of them but many of them and then some of us buy our annual passes the national park so if they're closed we're not getting the value of our passes so we are being ripped off anyway those are two things that i think i would like to hear what other people are thinking and i think these are two things that deserve a lot of attention so happy new year take it easy bye
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just to throw a little bit more fuel on the democracy reform fire, I wanted to talk uh, once again about the National Popular Vote Campaign. Uh, Just a day or two ago, I received a a well-timed email from the National Popular Vote Organization, and a quick reminder that uh, that this campaign has been going on since, I think, at least 2006, Uh, maybe longer, but we are closer than ever to uh, reforming the Electoral College, not doing away with it entirely exactly, but reforming it so that the winner of the National Popular Vote in presidential elections actually becomes president. So the way this uh, works is uh, something called an interstate compact. And so uh, going state by state, this organization has has campaigned for states to pass legislation that uh, agrees that their electoral college votes will go to the winner of the national popular vote. However, it is contingent on enough other states agreeing to the same rules Before it's enacted by any of them. So it sort of is passed, but it lies dormant until uh, enough states collectively uh, pass the legislation, uh, enough states so that the collective number of electoral votes passes 270. So, as I said, this campaign has been going on for almost as long as I've been paying attention to politics, Um, but here's what they say uh, just in part in their email. It says, a national popular vote for president is an achievable political goal that can be in place in time for the 2020 election and certainly by 2024. The bill has already been enacted into law in 12 states, possessing 172 electoral votes. The National Popular Vote Bill will take effect when enacted by additional states having only 98 more electoral votes. And the bill has previously passed in one chamber in 11 additional states with 89 electoral votes, and has been approved by unanimous bipartisan committee votes in two more states with an additional 26 electoral votes. I know that was a lot of numbers, but the point is there's momentum behind this. And uh, as they explain in their email, the 2019 legislative session has gotten off to a fast start. Legislators around the country are looking at this legislation and taking it seriously, and it's it's happening in states where – we're not starting from zero. They've already passed it in one chamber of the legislature, or, or the other, or it's gotten through a committee vote with bipartisan support. So there's more hope now than ever that, that we could actually get there within uh, you know, the next two years. And so as we know, the next big election is in 2020. Uh, the time to pass state-level pro democracy legislation that will make that 2020 election run smoothly is right now. The presidential campaigns haven't heated up yet. They're going to suck all the oxygen out of the room when they do. And we have a bunch of new badass legislators around the country right now ready to kick ass. And since we know that HR1 as good of a policy as it is and as good as the politics are, we know that it's not going to pass at the national level. So we need to keep the focus on the states. Uh, So if you live particularly in Colorado or New Mexico, those are absolute prime targets. Those are the two states where this uh, national popular vote legislation has actually already passed both chambers. It just passed them in different legislative sessions, so they couldn't be reconciled and turned into a law, but a lot of momentum there. And then uh, Oregon, Nevada, Arizona, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Michigan, North Carolina, and Maine are close in the running. They have passed it in one uh, chamber of their legislative body, but not the other. So again, momentum. We're not there yet, but we have momentum. So if you live in any of those states in particular, uh, this is a great campaign to get involved in, and if you don't live in one of those states, they are still organizing all across the country, so you could be part of the movement that gets the ball rolling in your state. So if you want to get involved, they're asking that you send emails to your state legislators encouraging them to pass the National Popular Vote Bill. Uh, you can also write letters to the editor that go out in your local media and local politicians certainly pay attention to those more than national level. And and then of course, donating to the nonprofit National Popular Vote organization. So For details on all of that, visit nationalpopularvote.com, and as I said, this is the time generally to focus on state-level pro-democracy anti-corruption legislation, and the other organization that is laser-focused on that is represent.us. So that's another organization we recommend you get involved with. Now, that is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode,